it seems everyone's a keyboard warrior these days. About three seconds after being triggered and enraged by something we encounter on social media, we're dashing off a furious note of protest to the world. But how much do we really care? Are there issues so urgent and important to you that you'd be prepared to be arrested to get your message across? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. It's great to have Mark Delaney zooming from Brisbane. How are you, Mark? Hey, I'm doing well, thanks, Kent. Excellent. Now, Mark, you have a really interesting backstory, but I guess the the reason why you're here with us this week on Science Radio is that you've written a cracker of an article for us in this month's uh, issue of of Science of the Times, looking at civil disobedience, which is a bit of a controversial issue, I guess, in, in this whole era of Black Lives Matter and, and, and mm. things like that. I have to confess, I attended one of the Black Lives Matter protests a, a mm. few weeks back when those gatherings were technically illegal. No one was arrested, which was good. And the fact that p- police were there, I'm sort of helping us out guiding traffic, but it did sort of make me think afterwards, wait a minute, I, I just broke the law. <laughs> Should I have done that? Yeah. So, it's a, a challenging issue. And you actually have been arrested, haven't you? That's right, Ken. Yeah, I've been arrested twice, and that was a pretty big deal for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 53 years old now, and I, I, I've gone through most of my life obeying the law, you know, really well. I hadn't even had a speeding ticket, but yeah, mm. last August uh, I was arrested for the first time in a sit-in uh, peaceful protest in Brisbane, and then in September I was arrested again at the uh, Adani coal mine site. Right, right, okay. And you are actually a, a trained lawyer, aren't you? That's right. I studied law at uh, Queensland Uni uh, many years ago, late 80s, early 90s. And yes, so I know a little bit about the law. I don't claim to be an expert on this, but I know a little bit about it. <laughs> some some would say uh, that that should mean uh, that you should know better. <laughs> well, I guess I guess some people would, some people would, and some people have said that, no doubt. <laughs> Look, bef- before we we get into that, just like to get a little bit of background about you, because you and your family have a fascinating story of living in India, in a, um, the word slum is coming to mind, but I'm sure that there's a a more more polite word for that. Can you just give us a little bit of background there? So after I'd studied uh, law in the the late 80s and my wife, Kathy, had studied maths and computer science at Queensland Uni as well, you know, we were both uh, looking good for really good careers in Australia. But during our university days or soon thereafter, we had a little bit of short-term experience uh, in India. And Mm. It changed my life. You know, I was, I was there and I met very, very poor people, people who were struggling to survive, and it changed my perspective. I, I suppose I was coming at that point from, and, and I still am, from a, a faith perspective, which mm. says, you know, life is not all about me and getting my big superannuation and my flash house and so forth. It's about looking around and seeing if I can make the world a better place. Mm. So fr- from that perspective, when I met people who were genuinely poor and I had to ask myself, hey, this just doesn't seem fair. You know, I, just by the very fact that I was born and brought up in Australia, I've had these wonderful opportunities, great education, great healthcare, and these guys ha- have not, not not any credit of mine or any problem of theirs to just where you were born. So I thought this, this world is a pretty unfair place. So I kind of decided there and then I, I want to use my skills, use my energy to try to 
help the world be a better place to cooperate with God, if you like, in trying to bring that about. Mm. This is interesting, Mark, because you could have pursued a legal career, done mm. quite well for yourself financially, and sent over a a lot of money, you know, mm. every month, every year to, you could have, you know, started up a charitable trust or something mm. like that and, and made a lot of positive difference in, in places like India. But instead, mm. you chose to go with your family to live among those people. Why that, why, 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 <laughs> that, why that route? Sure. And I mean, it does look pretty, pretty crazy, doesn't it, uh, when you put it in those terms? And, and in fact, my dad said exactly that. He said, look, you've had this great training. You know, you could do anything. You could work for the UN. You could work for the WHO. You could earn a whole lot of money. Why don't you do that? I, I suppose, Kent, it came down to thinking that God doesn't need uh, a checkbook as much as he needs people. Right? Mm. So what I mean by that is the thing that's lacking in the world to make things a better place are good people doing good things mm. more than money. Even if we had all the money in the world, you know, we had uh, dozens of Bill Gateses, it's not going to fundamentally change the world because the issues, the problems in the world are more about human relationships and selfishness and egos and all that kind of stuff, which requires people on the ground to change things. Mm. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Say my son, uh, Tom, is still in a, in a slum in India right now responding to COVID. So he says, look, one of the major problems there is kind of, in a sense, fatalism. People going, oh, well, whatever happens, happens, you know, and if, if I die, I die. And so that, that leads to people going, oh, well, we don't have to wear face masks, we don't have to social distance or any of that. And that's obviously a huge problem. So mm. what I'm saying there is it's an attitudinal thing. You know, it's a mm. mindset thing that's a major problem rather than the money. So that's why Kathy and I decided to go to India. And we spent 20 years, um, yeah, as you say, most of those time living in what many Australians would call a slum, you know, informal, illegal settlements. And that was our life for, for, for much of our married life. Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, we could hardly criticise you and say that this sort of putting your body on the line thing is you're sort of a Johnny-come-lately to that approach because mm, it, mm. it sounds like, well, as you say, you, you've been doing this for, for decades. So it, that experience like in India, what did that, I, I guess I'm, I'm just trying to figure out the connection between that experience and where you've ended up, you know, back in Australia thinking that, mm. you know, getting arrested for the, mm. you know, in opposition to a, a coal mine, for example, mm. is, is a justified thing to do. What, what did you learn about power mm. and government and politics and, the, mm. you know, and the power of putting your body on the line in India that has sort of led you to, to this place? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess the, what we'd noticed in the last five or 10 years in India was that climate change was or is the biggest issue of our generation. Mm. So, you know, development gains have been made in the majority world. You know, uh, life expectancy has gone up, infant mortalities come down uh, and so forth. Mm. But those development gains from the last 50 or 100 years could easily be wiped out with climate change. You know, as seas rise, subsistence farmers lose their lands altogether, food scarcity, wars will be fought over uh, scarce things like water and so forth, species extinction, more cyclones, more droughts, etc. Life in the developing world, in the majority world, is going to become very, very difficult, much more so than it will in Australia. Mm. So we come back to Australia in uh, about 2019 thinking, you know, this is a huge issue. 
And it's all very well for, you know, us in Australia to say, oh, well, you know, we've got time, we can slowly make this transition, it'll be okay. But it's already having a major effect in the majority world. Mm, so mm. this is an issue of urgency. Uh, so it, my civil disobedience around the issue of climate change very much comes out of my experience in India of seeing climate change adversely affecting the poor now, not in 10 mm, years, it's mm. happening now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I guess in in Australia, it's kind of got to the stage where climate change is one of those issues that you try to avoid in, in polite dinner conversation because it's it's a bit of a polarizer. It's it's become a political thing. But you're saying it's it's not just a hot button issue in in somewhere like India. I mean, Bangladesh, for example, you know, floods mm. every mm. year. Mm. It's a issue of life and death. It's 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 an issue of reality of people's livelihoods. Absolutely. This is an issue of humanity. You know, this should not be a political issue. The science is absolutely clear on this. There, there is very little debate over the science anymore. This is an issue of humanity. People are dying. People's lives are becoming much, much harder. And we have the choice. You know, are we just going to feather our own nest and make our own, you know, superannuation packages as big as possible? Or are we going to try to help the people in the world who are really struggling? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you and and your son uh, like wrote a book about mm. you know li- living a, a carbon neutral life. Um, you've done a lot of activism. You've done a lot of speaking and media appearances ar- around the place. But why civil disobedience? What made you think that this you know should be a, a part of the the mix of activities that you're involved in to raise awareness a- around climate change and and the impact that you see it happening you know in the in the developing world. Sure. So I think on on climate change, there's kind of two approaches to addressing this. One is changing ourselves as individuals, so reducing our own carbon footprint because, you know, in Australia we have, on on average, very large carbon footprint, about 22 tonnes a year compared to the global average of about 6.5 tonnes a year. So, you know, even though we don't notice it, we are partially responsible for this because we drive a lot, we fly a lot, we use our air conditions a lot, we have our swimming pools and so forth. So mm. part of this is an individual change thing, and that's why Tom and I wrote the book. We're essentially saying, hey, this is doable. It's doable to live a much lower carbon life, and it doesn't have to be awful. It can be fun. Mm. So that's why we wrote the book, Low Carbon and Loving It, and, and that's gone down very well. But the other side of it, apart from individual change, is systemic change. So changing the systems that are creating this mess. Mm. So what I mean by that is a system that promotes the extraction of thermal coal over and above the uh, building of wind farms or solar farms and so forth. They are Mm. policy decisions. They're systems decisions. Now, in many countries of the world, leaders are making sensible decisions and there's, there's, there's rapid transition. So in Denmark now, they... At certain, certain days, they can produce all of their electricity renewably, the whole lot. Britain has committed to getting carbon neutral by 2050, as has New Zealand. So certain governments are making decisions to make this transition. Mm. Other governments, and I'm sad to say uh, our own is, is one of the prime examples, are not. Now, there's a whole range of reasons for that. Primarily, there's a lot of money in the fossil fuel industry that funds political parties and so forth. So in trying to bring about systems change, there's a whole range of tactics you can use. You know, you can write to politicians and and, and so forth. Mm. And I've I've tried a lot of those. But one tool, and it's only one tool, is civil disobedience. Because what that does is it just raises raises the profile of the thing a fair bit more because, you know, if I'm there in my suit and tie getting arrested 
in the office of a fossil fuel company, it does raise the profile a bit. People look at that on TV and go, wow, you know, that guy looks pretty normal. <laughs> he looks like me. Mm. Why mm. is he doing that? Hey, maybe this issue is actually pretty serious after all. So mm. it's just trying to raise the profile with this thing with the ordinary Australian public. Okay. All right. So, so that I guess you're giving us a kind of a, a tactical, pragmatic reason why civil dis- disobedience works. But I, I guess, you know, some of our listeners may be wondering, well, you know, wait a sec, Mark, you know, earlier in the piece, you talked about your Christian faith and how it's still mm. important to mm. you. You know, sounds like you went on a mission trip to India and, mm. you know, decided to, you know, live your life sacrificially for the poor. That all sounds mm. re- really Christian, but mm. getting arrested because of mm. climate change, well, what's the go with that? You know, aren't Christians mm. supposed to be, you know, law-abiding people? Didn't the Apostle Paul say, you know, write things like, you know, hey, Christians, you should be subject to the authorities, you should give honour yeah. where honour is due and pay taxes where taxes are due. And, mm. you know, this this is a part of... of you know, living a, the sort of life that other people will look at you and say, wow, you know, you're a Christian, mm, you're, a, mm. you're a good person, you're a decent mm. person, you're a law-abiding person, mm. but you've decided to cross that line. So I, so while I can understand that civil disobedience may be a good method tactically, mm. can, you, can you justify it morally? Can you justify mm. it biblically even? Mm. Are, yeah, are, that, are you being a, a hypocrite as a Christian? Yeah, yeah and, that, and that's a great question. I mean, it's one thing to say something is something works, you know, something is efficacious. It's another thing to say, is it right? Exactly. Of course, we, of course we have to use that framework to say it doesn't matter if it works, it also needs to be right. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I've definitely done that thinking, Kent, about as a Christian, is this uh, morally justifiable? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you're talking there about the classic passage that many Christians would would use to not do civil disobedience, and that's mm. out of Romans 13.5, which says, you know, submit to the authorities, do what the, the, the boss says, mm. the, you know, the authorities say. Now, I think uh, that, that's fine, but it's very interesting that Paul wrote that in Romans from a prison. <laughs> you know, so he had obviously broken the law prior to that point. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, for me, Kent, the, the main model for my life is, is Jesus. Mm. And so as, as I look at Jesus' life, I'd say there's these two factors again of him asking us to change ourselves and our, mm. how we live and how we use our money, but also uh, asking us to help change the system. So mm. there's a cl- couple of classic examples there, you know. So Jesus is, is hauled over the coals by the authorities for, for example, healing people on the Sabbath. That is on a, you know, on a, on a Sunday or on a Saturday. You so, know, yeah, yeah. That, that's not the rule. You know, the, the, the bosses said, that you're breaking the rules and that's not okay. And Jesus said, basically, look, the, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So if I am doing good for people by healing on the Sabbath, then that overrides your rule. Mm. So what I'm talking about here is a hierarchy of rules, if you like, mm. or a hierarchy mm. of laws. And I would say the topmost uh, law that we run our lives is is exactly what Jesus said when he was asked what's the greatest law he said love God and love your neighbor mm. that's that's number one if loving my neighbor necessitates breaking a lower law then so be it right so yeah. that's the that's the justification that I'm using for this that if loving my neighbor requires breaking a, a, you know a, a very minor Australian law I will do that in order mm. to obey that upper law Mm, okay. All right. I, I, I guess I'm I'm trying to think of of examples of, of how that might work in in everyday life. I mean, what what are some examples of of laws like whether it's in Australia or, or around the world that you would see as 
getting in the way of us effectively loving our neighbour. Well, I mean, a classic example from uh, history, Kent, would be, say, the civil disobedience, uh, the, the civil rights movement in the US in the 60s. So there's, there's a bunch of laws in place which basically say black people and white people, or well, black people can't eat in these restaurants, sit in those places on buses and so forth. There's segregations written into the laws. Mm-hmm. Now, many people, including people of faith, you know, the Reverend Martin Luther King and many, many people looked at that and said that is fundamentally unchristlike. That mm. is fundamentally unchristian. And so we're going to deliberately disobey those laws in order to fulfill the higher law of loving God and loving your neighbour. And mm. of course, that's written into history now as a, a very successful uh, civil disobedience campaign that did bring about change. Mm. Mm. Uh, so that's, you know, a pretty simple example. Or, or here's another one that's happening right now in Brisbane today. We've got a bunch of refugees sitting in a, in a detention centre only uh, three kilometres from my house and I visited th- some of those guys. They have been in detention for seven years mm. with no crime, no crime committed whatsoever except trying to escape a threatening situation. Mm. Seven yeah. years in prison. So L- you look Locked at that, up for asking for help, basically. Exactly. Locked up yeah. for asking for help. Yeah. So the Australian government has a law saying that's permissible, that's okay, we should do that. I would say, and many other people are saying, that is not loving my neighbour. Mm. My neighbour has come to my doorstep asking for help and we've locked him up for seven years. I would say that is breaking God's rule to love my neighbour and mm. therefore it's permissible to engage in civil disobedience to challenge that Australian law. And, in fact, tonight with a bunch of friends, I'm going to that detention centre from 8 a.m. to 4, uh, 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. and we're going to partake in a in a blockade of that uh, institution right, right. because we fundamentally believe it's uh, it's cruel, inhumane, and and it's breaking God's law. So if it, let, let's say um, just to take it one step further, if, if one of these people who are in indefinite immigration detention mm. was to escape somehow and yes. this has happened from time to time and they were to come to you know to, to your home and say yeah. I, I need you to put me up I need you to hide me from the authorities would you feel justified in in doing that legally I mean yeah that's a great that's a great question so obviously there you, you know you, you many listeners will, will parallels with that with Nazi Germany and hiding Jews and so forth yeah. so look Obviously, we have in a, a very, very different situation in Australia to, you know, Nazi Germany in the 1940s. We, we haven't got authorities that are going to shoot people, right, mm. and torture people. And I, and I thank God for that. You know, we have a pretty, mm. you know, civil <laughs> administration. So, look, if, if a refugee came, escaped and came to my house, yes, I would try to help. Mm. <laughs> yes, and, and if that means we, we try to get this person to somewhere away from the view of the authorities in the short term mm. while we negotiate with the authorities, then, yes, I, I certainly consider that. Mm. So, mm. yeah, yeah ex- exactly. If, if, if it comes down to it, being prepared to break the law in fairly minor ways. Mm. Mm. But I would also emphasise all of this stuff is, is peaceful. We are not being violent. We're not being abusive. We're not destroying property. It's all very peaceful and all very respectful. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned um, not destroying property because I'm I'm aware of a, a Christian group that called our uh, plowshares, I believe, yes. which yes. 
a very you know really want to raise awareness about the danger of nuclear weapons and in the in the UK in particular are quite yes. upset that their government is selling you know weapons of mass destruction to other countries or continuing to produce them and, and this sort of stuff and they've actually broken into like military bases in the mm. UK they've basically saved up a taken a little bit of blood from themselves over mm-hmm. previous weeks and months and then mm-hmm. use that blood to like paint you know mm-hmm. slogans mm-hmm. on the on, on military installations and and to symbolically I think hit hit them with a hammer mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. to sort of fulfill that Old Testament prophecy of turning swords into plowshares and and, yeah. and this sort of stuff they have actually crossed the line into trespass into into property damage at least mm-hmm. in a, in a symbolic way mm-hmm. Like, is there a line that you feel that that you w- wouldn't cross? <laughs> well, yes, I think in the short answer is yes, there is a line which I would not cross. So, for example, if it meant, you know, killing somebody or if, if it meant, uh, you know, being violent towards a person, I think that's a mm. line that I wouldn't cross. Mm. But I was in a training, you know, for, when we talk about property damage, you know, generally we, we're working off the principle of no property damage because that doesn't look good, you know. Mm. To, it doesn't look good in the media. It doesn't tend to make your friends and so forth. However, some of the things you're talking about are more symbolic acts than mm. anything else. You know, they're not, you know, major damage. It's, a, you know, if you take your own blood and you paint a sign on the tarmac mm. saying, you know, Iraqis have died. Well, you know, how much property damage is that? You know, you yeah, get the high-pressure yeah. water gun out and it's gone in five minutes. Yeah. So there's, there's symbolic acts, which I think... Are, are generally fine. But yes, there's, there's lines that I wouldn't cross. And mm. by and large, as I say, we're trying to do things non-violently, peacefully and respectfully. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, is, is this a modern phenomenon, the whole, you know, Christians involved in civil disobedience thing? Or, or does this, uh, are you kind of drawing on a tradition that, that goes back? Oh, absolutely. You know, we're drawing on a Christian tradition that goes back to Jesus, you know, it goes back mm. 2,000 years. And, and, you know, we're talking about a couple of examples from the Bible. Another, probably the most famous example that Jesus gave us was uh, overturning the tables in the temple. So there mm. was an exploitative system obeying the rules, exploiting the poor and turning, you know, the, the, the temple into a place of commerce rather than a place of prayer. Jesus was uh, upset with that. So he demonstrated it in a very emphatic way. You know, so he overturned the tables and chased out the money changes. So mm. there's, a, you know, there's our example from the start. But mm. throughout history, there's been many, many examples. As you point out, you know, many Christians would have hid, uh, hid Jews during the Nazi regime. Mm. In the 1940s in India, what, 30s and 40s, Mahatma Gandhi most famously has uh, mm. kind of developed this whole thing of non-violent civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. So there, again, the British had unjust laws that only British products could be sold. Indians couldn't make their own products, you know, so mm-hmm. cloth or salt or so forth. Gandhi said, look, that's uh, that's unfair. And so there was mass civil disobedience, which led to eventually the, the British quitting India in 1945. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about the civil rights movements in the US in the 1960s. In, the, in Australia, you might go back to the Franklin Dam in the, in the 80s in Tasmania, mm-hmm. where mass civil disobedience, people got down there to protect uh, the Franklin. So people, you know, most people in Australia would look back on those days and go, wow, that, thank goodness that people did that. that. Those were heroic acts, good on them. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we treat those acts of civil disobedience with praise and heroism. And I dare say in 20 years' time, we're going to look back, not, not that I want to be treated as a hero, but we're going to look back at, at people who have engaged in civil disobedience for refugees or climate change or whatever and, and go, well, thank goodness somebody 
somebody was mm, doing. Mm. And it's interesting because at the time, I think of like Martin Luther King Jr., for example, at, at the time when he was, you know, raising the issue of, um, you know, black inequality, when he was, you know, opposing the Vietnam War and this sort of stuff, he was called a communist. And these days you have very conservative Christians actually mm. quote him, you know, approvingly. It's, it's, it's funny how someone's image can be rehabilitated after, you know, 50 or 60 years, isn't it? Absolutely. T- times change, don't they? And then yeah, how, we, yeah. how we view history does, does change rapidly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, so look, some of our listeners might be thinking, yeah, like there's an issue that, you know, that I feel passionate about, you mm. know, whether it is climate change, whether it's mm. refugees. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of the issues that we've mentioned have been, I guess, you know, traditionally, you know, left issues. Mm. You know, but what about something like abortion? You know, there have been Christians sure. who, who have been outside abortion clinics and, and mm. practice civil disobedience in, in that context too. So what, whatever the, the issue is mm. where people can see injustice, do you have any sort of practical tips to, to leave them with? I mean, I know you do in your article, so it's certainly worth, mm. you know, referring mm. to that. You know, jump online, everyone, you know, check it out, uh, signsofthetimes.org.au and just, you know, search civil disobedience or Mark Delaney, mm. the article will come up. But can you just give us a little um, thumbnail sketch just as we finish, Mark, in the, mm. in the last few minutes of mm. some of those practical steps people can take, you know, perhaps before undertaking civil disobedience and and if they decide to go in that direction? I think, first of all, try legal tactics, you know, and Mm. there's there's plenty of them there. So write to your politicians, visit your politicians, sign petitions and and so forth. Try Mm. the legal tactics, see how you go. Mm. Try try that first. But then if you decide, look, this isn't working and we need to up the ante a little bit and and, and, and use civil disobedience, the first thing is I'd say don't do it by yourself. Because this is quite a difficult thing to do. You know, the first time that I got arrested, it was very, it was nerve-wracking. You know, I, mm. I, I was a, a law-abiding, nice guy. Well, I still am, <laughs> you know. But it is a bit, it's a bit nerve-wracking. So to do it with a friend uh, or, or even better, a group of friends is much better so that you can, you can talk about it, you can even pray together before you do it, you can mm. encourage each other, you know, when you're feeling scared. So do it together. Mm. I think it's a good idea. And then to be very clear about what is our message. You know, if people say, why are you doing this? You've got to be really clear on what's your message. Mm. So, for example, on this thing about refugees, which is going on in Brisbane right now, the message is very clear that what we're asking is for people to be released from this indefinite detention and released into community detention before Christmas. That's mm. the ask, right? Well, that's, mm. why, that's mm. one of the main asks. So be very clear on what your message is, what your mm. demand is, so that then the authorities know, okay, here is what we're being asked, and if we do this, then this civil disobedience will stop. Mm. And then to figure out very clearly who am I, who am I sending this message to, you know? Is it to a corporation? Is it to the government? Is it to a particular politician? So... In other words, do it smart, you know. Mm, got, mm. Yes, you've got to have passion to do these things, but also use your head. Do it smart. What are we saying? Who are we saying it to? How can we best get that message across to that target audience? Mm. And then finally, you know, if you decide to what, what people, uh, activists would say, go the distance, in other words, mm-hmm. you go right through to being arrested if that's necessary, then to do that very carefully. So within your group, you, you want to have a police liaison officer, someone who's going to talk with the police respectfully about the whole thing and explain things, someone who's going to take some video footage, you know, so they can click it up on Facebook or give it to the media, someone who's going to, you know, take your belongings back home for you, you know, if you're arrested. So just plan it out very carefully. But to know that if you do go the distance 
and you do get arrested, it's not the end of the world. It's it's actually can be a very empowering and liberating experience. Mm-hmm. And look, what what will happen is you might get released without charge, and then there's no issue at all. Mm. Or you might uh, be charged with a very minor offence, you know, disobeying the police directive. And you might, in my first case, I got a two hundred dollar fine mm. with no conviction recorded. So there's mm-hmm. no implications for me in travel or jobs or anything. So we're not talking about jail time here. We're talking about pretty minor things yeah. to make although, a pretty good point. Although, although, of course, this will vary according to your situation, the jurisdiction, the sort of, of course. direct of course. action you're, you're involved in. But, yes. yeah, but that's been your experience, you know, so far. So, obviously, you know, if if you do have a, an individual situation, it would probably be best to get, you know, your own legal advice rather than, you know, relying on a sort of a general thing. But it's certainly valuable to, to hear your, your experience with that, Mark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is certainly not uh, legal advice coming to you. By all yeah. means, you know, get your own legal advice. All I'm saying is my experience, and it's not everyone's experience, yep. but my experience is, look, it's been largely positive, and even the police have actually been very respectful, very calm, and some of the police actually believe in these issues as well, you know, mm. and they're sympathetic. You can tell from their body language. Wow. So there's, yeah, so it's overall been a very positive experience for me. Wow, look, that's absolutely fascinating, Mark. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into some of your passions and some of your, you know, strategies and, and tactics. And it's certainly a, a lot to think about. If you <laughs> haven't got something to stand for, you'll fall for everything. That kind of thing. You'll fall. Yeah, that's there. That's that's really powerful. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate your time this week. Great, Ken. Thanks very much. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. 